Today on episode number 149 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Rebecca Hogue talks about giving voice and face to the illness experience. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I have been so excited to be able to talk to today's guest. It's been something we've been working on coordinating for a while. Rebecca Hogue is a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa in Ottawa, Canada. She has a professional background in instructional design and also software quality insurance. She holds a Master of Arts degree in distributed learning and a Bachelor of Science degree in computer science. Her passion is for creating innovative education solutions, and I have seen that from even just what little bit of glimpses I've been able to catch into the work that she does. I'm super excited to talk to her today. Her PhD research, which she'll be sharing with us today, involves looking at the educational affordances of illness blogs, and she teaches instructional design for online courses at the University of Massachusetts Boston. Today, she'll be sharing a bit with us about her experience in June 2014 of becoming a breast cancer warrior. And this unexpected twist in her life, she shares, helps her to highlight her desire to explore connected communities and how education and our life experiences are enhanced through connections. And I feel like my life has been enhanced by being connected with her, and I'm just so excited to welcome Rebecca Hogue to the show. Rebecca, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. We were talking. It's been more than a year since I first started to get you on the show, and I know you've had all kinds of stuff going on, and I even appreciate now you're taking time away from guests that are staying in your home. I really just appreciate your your spending time today in conversation. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. You're the first guest who I've ever had on the show that I had to go into a little bit more depth as to how to re- you how to refer to you, because I know you have all these different identities that you have to consider kind of what space you're in and what context it is. Could you talk a little bit about some of these identities and some of the complexities involved there? Sure, sure. So one of the identities I carry is that I teach at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, I live in California, but I teach in Boston, uh, Boston online. So I have a presence as an online instructor there, but I'm also a PhD student and I'm a breast cancer survivor. And so for the longest time, I had separate identities for different spaces. Um, I'm a blogger in many spaces. I have a travel blog. I have an academic blog and a breast cancer blog. And so my, my spaces were very different for a long time. You know, I I really sort of compartmentalized some of that. And so unless you dug deeply, you wouldn't have seen the two to be connected. But now that my research, I'm researching doing autoethnography and looking at my breast cancer blog as a data set. And with that, my identities had to merge. And so 
for the longest time, you, my students, and professionally, I would be Rebecca J. Hogue, and you can Google me as Rebecca J. Hogue and get, you know, sort of that professional view of who I am. And my blog was, my breast cancer blog was Becky, and it was just Becky. It was like, I didn't have a first name or a last name, bcbecky.com. And at that blog, it was just that. And, so, and there was no combination between the two. So if my students were to look up or anything, they wouldn't necessarily know. But now that I'm doing research in that area, the two have merged. And I really had to think sort of deeply about that in some spaces because the, the risks associated with exposing yourself as, as a cancer survivor in an employment situation, it just gets really complicated. Tell me about the significance of June 14th, 2014. Oh, wow. <laughs> So that was, that was my diagnosis day. And I had just moved to California. And what happened was, of course, short, shortly after moving to California, I found a lump and I was, went through the diagnosis process. And I started my blog within, you know, I hadn't even had my full pathology yet. So I started my blog like two days after I was told I had cancer. You know, that was my outlet, my way of, you know, processing and getting through it, but also telling everybody. But, I, you know, it's funny because I couldn't wait. I had seen as I was going through, I had seen blog posts. Like I'm, as a blogger, right, you go through life and you, you, your experiences become blog posts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you see blog posts in your experience. And so I saw that I went through that sort of process. You know, one of the first things that went through my mind is if I get treated at Stanford, do I get to wear the sweatshirt? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you don't go to, you know, so wearing a university sweatshirt for a university you didn't go to, right? Like it just doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> so it's like, well, going through this, if I go through there, then I think I qualify because, you know, going through this process is at least worth a master's degree. Right? <laughs> so... I get to officially wear the Stanford sweatshirt because I can say oh, I went to Stanford. It just was in a different way. At the time, who did it feel like you were writing to or, or I don't know if writing for is the right way to ask the question to or for. Well, you know, what's interesting is it changed at some point too. And so originally I was writing to myself and to a small group of friends, actually, well, some of the Rise of 14 folk, because we were in the middle of that when I was diagnosed. And so it was actually my online friends that I was writing for. So it starts off as, you know, for me, it was friends and family. Because the other thing I couldn't do is I couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. At least for two weeks, I could not say the words. I couldn't talk about it. But because I had moved down here and my family is all up in Canada, being so far away, they needed to know what was going on and I couldn't be on the phone all the time. I couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so it just gave me that outlet. But it, what was interesting and what I saw with my research is not, it didn't take very long before my audience changed and it became fellow survivors and it became an education tool for other people. So I was sharing my experience to help other people. And I had some very moving comments on my blog and emails from people that were fellow that were not necessarily bloggers, but were reading my blog saying things like, you know, this really helped me process what, what I went through 
or help me understand what my sister went through or help me help me talk to my doctors. So I got lots of lots of that kind of feedback. And so my audience really did change. Friends and family were always there. And that was always there. That always became an issue, too, because when you're writing about some of these things and, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of negative feelings that happen and you write about them, but you have to worry about your family reading them. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And knowing that they're going to read them. And so it's like, but on the other hand, I wanted to make sure that I was brutally honest because I always had at the back of my mind that I might be doing research on this, right? This data set that is my blog is a useful research tool. One of the themes that has come up probably more than any other in over 150 episodes is the issue (laughs) of vulnerability and just what is required to be pursuing excellence in our teaching is just this sense of risk and we might fail and the rawness with which so many of us work at trying to pursue this mysterious craft. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm curious, though, for you, it has to have been a new type of vulnerability and I'm just curious how you sort of respond to that. Do you, did you sense vulnerability in your teaching before diagnosis? Did it take on something new after your diagnosis? And then, and then also just to really be a terrible interviewer and ask 13 questions at once. <laughs> how did you decide with your students what you would share and wouldn't share in a classroom? You know, I know it's teaching online, but, you know, in the, in the online classroom environment. Well, in the online classroom environment, it's even more of an issue because your students are more likely to Google you. Mm-hmm. And so your students are more likely to see your full identity in the online space, I think, than in your in the face-to-face space, because in the face-to-face space, they see you in that area, whereas an online, you know, sort of your sort of your online identity. And I really had to think about it. And because I also offer a course on blogging, I very specifically have people before they start blogging, thinking about how much they want to expose themselves. There was an article I read early on in my PhD that talked about academics and how some people are inherent share people and other people aren't. So some people just by their nature hold things in and keep that privacy thing. And some people are more public. And I'm, I've always been one of those more public people. So for me, sharing, it didn't bother me that much. The bigger worry was because I'm a, an adjunct at this point, I'm a part-time professor, the risk of whether or not I'll get hired or rehired into jobs, because when I put myself out there, my cancer identity does show up. And that, you know, how does that affect employability? That is a huge issue for young survivors when you're younger and you know you've got a whole career ahead of you or a life, you know, a time ahead of you the risk of exposing your cancer history to the world. And it does cause an interesting thing in teaching because I don't, I don't intentionally mention my cancer experiences when I teach, but it does come up. And sometimes it comes up because I bring, so one of the the things I like to do in my classroom is I do synchronous sessions where I bring in guest speakers And so when I do that, I'm reaching out to a lot of my online friends to come and visit my classroom and talk about it. The cancer thing sometimes comes up in that context Mm -hmm. because my friends know both 
identities and they don't, you know, they don't separate the two. And as a result of that, you know, it does come up sometimes. And I've had students in private emails come up to me and talk to me because they've gone through similar experiences. And so, and it's an interesting dynamic, but it helps us remember that we're all people. We're all human in this process. I came across a new word as I was reading everything I could get my hands on (laughs) before we talked today. (laughs) And that is pathography. What can you tell us about pathography? Pathography is sort of like people are familiar with biography and autobiography where you're talking your life history or memoir. Pathography is the memoir of a person through illness. So where illness is the focus of the memoirs. It's become a really um, big genre in writing. Actually, there's a lot more, you know, memoir of breast cancer experience. There's a lot of books in that area. And those are considered pathographies. And in specifically in the fields of um, sociology, they do a lot of research of looking at what people share in their pathographies, what they look like and sort of the what what is the struggle that is that the illness for different illnesses. What's interesting with pathography, it's also considered pathography when a caregiver writes an illness story. Because again, it's still about the illness becomes it is one of the key focuses of the story. In your case, with your PhD research, you're doing an autoethnography. And would you share a little bit about your PhD and, and actually a little bit about how we could learn more about your research if we wanted to? So I am actually blogging a lot of my research because, you know, I'm inherently a blogger, can't help it. And so I blog my research at livingpathography.org. And so I use the word pathography. I think of blogs as a living pathography in that most pathographies that are said, well, actually, when people study pathography, they're studying books that have been published, right? So they're very post-processed issues. So people, when they write their pathographies, they go back and do what I'm doing with my autoethnography, and that's the re-experiencing of things and pulling things out from a retrospective right? Because you have the benefit of hindsight when you're writing at this point. (laughs) But the blog itself, you don't have that benefit of hindsight when you look at a blog, right? A blog is the raw data as it happens. And so I think of it more of a living thing. And so in studying blogs, I'm looking at studying sort of the living experience as it's being experienced rather than the retrospective experience. And so that's, I that's where sort of where the name living pathography came from. So a lot of our talk on the episodes around cultural competence have brought up examples of microaggressions. And we've had people of color sharing about ones that have been inflicted upon them. And then also we recently had Stephen Brookfield share about his experiences as a white man where he had found himself reflecting back and realizing he had inflicted a microaggression on his students. And I'm curious, is there such a thing in your mind as microaggressions that those of us who are less educated about cancer, cancer survivors that, that we inflict on people without realizing it? Do you think that there's a, is that the right use of this word in this context? Oh, there's a lot. Um, Identity is actually such a huge aspect of it. Even, even the term survivor, 
mm-hmm. is a loaded word for a lot of people. If you have metastatic disease, you're not considered a survivor, right? Because you're going to die from cancer and you don't, you know, so you don't get to carry that identity. Like it, it just seems very weird. And then there, there's like, when do you get to call yourself a survivor? It's like the, from the day, the last day the cancer comes out or the day, like it's sort of when you take on these different identities becomes a huge issue. Well, issue, it's, it's a self-reflection in a lot of ways. And I use the term survivor for myself, not because it means anything to me, but because it means something to other people. It's the easiest way for me to explain it. Mm. And I know other people that don't. They call themselves warriors. There's your, your, your battle metaphor again. Can we go back to that for a second? Because I did read a little bit about that, but I can't even trace back to where it was. But just this, this critique calling, saying cancer is not a battle. Tell us more about that, because I think that's probably misunderstood by most of us. It is. Um, and part of it is because it puts a winning and losing mentality right? You win a battle or you lose a battle, Mm -hmm. but it isn't, but that isn't, that isn't even a good, it isn't a good metaphor for what it is because you actually live with cancer once you've been diagnosed for the rest of your life, right? It's not something that generally goes away, at least with breast cancer in particular, it's not a disease that you ever stop living with once you've had it. But the battle metaphor puts something on the victim, like it makes the, the, the patient, it sounds like they did something wrong, right? They lost their battle because they didn't try hard enough. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's that guilt that happens. The positive attitude one is another one that comes up a lot, right? So people are always like, oh, but if you put on a brave face, you know, you'll do, you know, if you just have a positive attitude, you'll do better. And that just puts it back onto the patient again. You're back into the making the patient behave a particular way so that the healthy person feels better about it. I was thinking about, I I think I saw greeting cards that were written by a cancer survivor. And now I'm going to be sensitive to the use of that word, but, but that were really humorous as if like, if, if the people that actually made greeting cards knew what it was like to have cancer, this is what they would actually make for those greeting cards. And I'll I'll Um, have to see. There's actually a book. She actually wrote a book. Healthy Crow. And it's a really good book and it's, there's no good card for this is the type is the the key title. It's a really um, just recently launched the book and I went to her book reading in Mountain View and she's such a powerful person and an amazing speaker. She's a breast cancer survivor herself, but she does. um, She talks about how do you talk to somebody with a critical illness? And, you know, cancer in particular, because a lot of people just don't know how to talk to people, you know, they're they're afraid to talk to people or they stumble over what they say. And in many cases, you know, I'd rather you stumble with a good meaning than not try at all. But she actually gives a lot of really good advice on things like how you can help somebody when they're going through things, because that's another area where people sort of put it on the survivor. It's sort of like the, you know, I want to help you tell me how I can help you. And I'm all like, but now I have to think about how you can help me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, and, and so she positioned it and the, how are you question that is always like the worst question <laughs> in the world. Right. Especially because you don't know what people are 
asking when they ask, how are you? Well, and that's such a societal thing of, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? And sometimes you can have that exchange without even having asked the person how they are, but they're just so used to that being the first greeting. And, and, and often it's like, I can't even say it because it's like, how are you? Except that I'm not well. Right. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a really hard thing. And, and actually her advice was really brilliant. And she just said, she, you know, put context to it. How are you today? Mm. Is suddenly something that you can answer. Well, today I'm feeling pretty good. Right. Or today I'm not doing so well, but just a, how are you is just such a big loaded question. And I just think it's brilliant. Like she's, she's created this book. And it's an easy read. It's not not a difficult book to read or it's not, you know, but it's got so much, so many good bits of advice for how to handle it. But they also have some great greeting cards. Rebecca, in what ways were you able to find humor in your experiences? And, and just one of the examples I have of many was just the post that you wrote about what boobs to wear today. <laughs> you know, and it, it's kind of funny because that was that was actually one of the very first posts I wrote very early on. And in part, because what, what, you know, when you're going through it, humor is a release and you use that. And, and as a blogger, of course, then I want to share that. And so I had watched at one point a Ted talk from this woman whose name I can't remember who had artificial legs and she had different legs for different things. So she could wear, you know, she could change her height based upon which leg she was wearing. So if she wanted to wear a dress, she might wear one pair of legs. And, you know, just fascinating that sort of, and I had taken that, of course, I'm somebody who likes to, you know, I take things from different, my different identities and merge them together. And so I often see things when I'm looking at healthcare related things, I I see things from education and how they can come together. And so for that one, I just sort of came to the the idea of, I was facing a double mastectomy because I had cancer on both breasts. And going through that process of, oh my God, what am I going to do? But one of the humor parts of it, I thought it was like, I could, you know, have different boobs for different days. <laughs> and, you know, just how would people react if one day I come out and I'm this double D cup or whatever, and the next day I'm an A cup, right? Can you imagine the idea of having different boobs, you know, based upon your outfit, but also for different circumstances. Um, and I, just, I just thought that was completely absurd. And so I wrote about that in, in, in the Bayes Anthology in a little short story called Window Shopping. But it's humor in the moment that gets you through it, right? That is such an interesting thing just to think about how we look at things so differently when we go through such hard experiences. And I mean, actually, maybe it's not even that we look at things so differently from hard experiences, but just from our life's experiences. I'm one of the things I try to do with my young kids is try not to get impatient with them if they're being slow or or something like that. Because so many times, if I just can get inside their little minds, it's because they are able to pay attention to things that I long ago forgot to pay attention to. And they'll see things that I will completely miss in a day. And your your context totally changes uh, on experiences like this. That's such such an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I found you know, and the other thing I found was the 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 nature. And I remember blogging about nature having more beauty, mm. like little things. Like I would go for a walk along the Guadalupe Trail, which was like the, behind my house at the time, and it just sort of 
follows this little water waterway. And, you know, there would be egrets and like these beautiful birds that I would look at. But then, you know, one day I'm walking and I noticed the snails. And, you know, it's just these little things that I'm like, wow. And I'm just in awe of the beauty of these things. I went through that for a little while and then I'm kind of losing it again. I'm no notice. I'm starting to lose that same sort of sense of everything being beautiful or everything, you know, seeing those little details. And it's exactly like, like, as you were saying, as a, as a child sees things, they see all of those details and they have to process them. And when I was going through treatment, it was the same sort of the world slows down mm-hmm. and, and you start to see the little things in a different way. Well, it has been great hearing a little bit about your stories, but I'm also going to encourage that people go check out all the links we're going to have in the show notes, which are going to be at teachinginhighered.com slash 149. And this is the point where we get to share some recommendations. And today I'm actually handing over my recommendations duties to Adam Kroom, who's going to tell us a little bit about an upcoming conference he wants to share. Hey, Teaching in Higher Ed listeners, this is Adam Kroom, Director of Digital Learning at the University of Oklahoma, where I play a lead role in the domain of one's own initiative, OU Create. I've got an opportunity for you that Bonnie has so kindly let me pass along. If you follow open education within education technology, you've likely came across the domain of one's own initiative, which started at the University of Mary Washington and affords each faculty, staff, and student their own web domain to build a digital identity on the open web. No, this isn't your tilde spaces of yesteryear. Domains offer technologies that allow students students to install popular applications like Drupal, WordPress, and Omeka, create their own subdomains, and even host their own email. What's even better is that because the domains are registered in their name, they fully own the content and can take it with them beyond their tenure at their respective institution, unlike the learning management systems that most of our institutions have adopted. And this thing is blown up. Domain initiatives have taken the world by storm with more than 40 institutions now offering domains. Okay, so here's where you come in. In June, specifically June 5th and 6th, the University of Oklahoma, along with Reclaim Hosting, is hosting the first annual Domains Conference, which is dedicated to exploring domains and other open web technologies in the classroom. And we would love for you to come join us uh, in Oklahoma City. Join a community of folks like Jim Groom, Alan Levine, Martha Burtis, Jesse Stommel, John Udell, Laura Tobe, and many others who will be leading sessions. If you're passionate about student ownership, ed tech, the open web, digital literacy, open pedagogy, this is the conference for you. Learn more about how you can begin your indie approach to ed tech today. Register at domains.reclaimhosting.com. That's domains.reclaimhosting.com. I hope to see you on June 5th in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Oh, that sounds like such a great conference, Adam. Thank you for sharing it with us. And I'm going to pass it over now to Rebecca. What do you have to recommend? You know what? I'm going to recommend, well, I want to recommend a couple things. I want to recommend a book written by Kelsey Crow and Emily McDowell called There's No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. 
it's a really great book to help people, you know, sort of reach out and talk to people when they're going through things like cancer. And it's, it's an easy read. So it's not, not hard to read, but it has some really, really great advice in it. And so I highly recommend that. The other thing I want to recommend, they're called empathy cards. And you can see them at emilymcdowell.com. And she writes these really, really great cards that are, you know, they sort of say what, what's really hard to say in a really, really nice way. There's one that just is, there's no good card for this. <laughs> but it, it makes it easy, you know, and I shouldn't say it makes it easy. It makes it easier to reach out. Like, you know, I'm so sorry you're sick. This sucks, right? <laughs> kind of thing. But they're nice. They're great cards. And I would definitely um, recommend taking a look at both of them and the book. One says, I promise never to refer to your illness as a, quote, journey, unless someone takes you on a cruise. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a burden, you're human. Yeah, they're just, they're so beautiful. You know, if you're trying to reach out to somebody and you want to say something, but you don't know how to say it, this, it's a great resource to figure that out. And so much of what you said earlier, just in terms of the microaggressions, is just when we as potential listeners get in the way of ourselves because we want to fix that other person because they're making us feel uncomfortable. And it's kind of like, actually, that's not really your role. You can't fix this. So as soon as you give that up and can just be present for another person, things seem to go a lot better. Yeah, exactly. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing all of this and just for your ongoing vulnerability that's required to do the wonderful work that you do. You've certainly helped so many others and, and so many that, that you'll never know about that, that hopefully they'll pop up somewhere in a comments mention, but, but so many just, just that you've touched their lives without them ever knowing it. And just thank you for that. And, and for being on today's show, I'm just so excited to have finally gotten to talk to you. Yeah. And thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited and looking forward to hearing the podcast when it's done. Thanks to all of you for listening and to being such a great part of the teaching in higher ed community. If you'd like to connect on an even deeper level with the community, you're always welcome to check out our Slack community. You can find out more at teachingandhighered.com slash Slack. And speaking of the community, if you wanted to not have to remember to go to teachingandhighered.com slash 149, these resources from every week's show can come into your inbox automatically if you go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and that will also get you a copy of the EdTech Tools Guide, 19 tools that will help you use technology in both your teaching and also your productivity. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next time. It's going to be episode 150. It's an all-recommendations episode, and you'll get to hear from some past guests and some other members of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. So make sure and download it next week, and I'll see you then. 